Welcome to Resilient. I'm your host, Jen Chambers. In my work as a writer, I talk about strong women with bold stories and strong people with bold stories who use creative means to problem solve and make their lives better despite their illnesses or their conditions. In my work here as a podcaster, I speak to and about these people, and my focus is on how we keep going. I like to use my unique perspective to, sh to showcase some people you know and some you might know. Today, we're going to do that from history. We all know the author Jane Austen. When we think of Jane Austen, we think of what we would now call romantic comedies. Her work has been described as basically the same plot written many, many times over. But what most people don't think about is how groundbreaking her work actually was. She was an amazing person of her time period. It's hard not to think what a person, what a, what a actually controversial person she was. But also at the same time, she was very pedantic and did a lot of things that were expected of her. But Jane also had her secrets, they say. There certainly is some mystery in Jane's life. We'll explore that today on Resilient. Jane was born on the 16th of December, 1775, in the Steventon Rectory in Hampshire, England. She and her family lived in that rectory in Hampshire, her father being the rector, which is what in America we would call a pastor or priest. He married Jane's mother, Cassandra, in 1864. Reportedly, from all letters and all sorts of material from that time period, they were happy, but they were modest. They lived in what George made, of course, which wasn't very large, and they also lived on the assumption that Cassandra would eventually inherit something from her wealthier parents. They had sort of a star-crossed love affair where uh, Cassandra's family was, was much better off than George's humble um, family, who were, who were uh, several of them were rectors and of uh, the religious persuasion, and Cassandra's family was not. So it, it really leads off with an interesting sort of romantic story for Jane to grow up with. Jane and her family <clears throat> moved to a different house in Steventon in 1768. By that time, um, Cassandra had had James in 1765, George in 1766, and Edward in 1767. By the time they moved in 1768, she had these three small children, and then Cassandra had Henry Austin in 1781. According to the author Deidre Lefay in her work, The Chronology of Jane Austen's Life, it was near this time that the family became aware that young George was what we would now call developmentally delayed or disabled. He was possibly deaf and also mute. Other sources cite that he had seizures and fits. Cassandra sent him out to be fostered. It was a common thing that was done at the time, 
And it was also Cassandra's practice to keep her children at home for only the first several months. And then she sent them out to be raised by a foster parent from about age 12 months to age 18 months. Cassandra used the same foster parent, Elizabeth Littleton, which I would imagine gave some sort of um, continuity to her children. I bet that if you were doing that, you would want to do it with the same person. Interesting to think of that being its own job description at the time as well. So then by the time um, her daughter, Cassandra's daughter, Cassandra also, (laughs) Cassandra II, was born in 1773. They also had Francis in 1774. And then by the time they had Jane in 1775, they hoped to have a girl companion for her sister, Cassandra. And it turned out to be true. They would later describe themselves in letters and in many, many journals and works as the best of friends. The atmosphere of their home was genial and was reportedly a place that you could discuss ideas openly. The four siblings who remained in the home were great friends. Mrs. Cassandra Austin traveled often to visit her husband's sister, Philadelphia, and her daughter, Eliza. And those travels would bring back news of the fashionable London of the time, the the fashion plates, the goings-on, the parties. It was great stories for the family. In an article called The Many Ways in Which We Are Wrong About Jane Austen, author Helena Kelly does a great job of putting Jane's real life in context. Now, remember Jane, she was born in 1775, which was a year before the American Revolution. And then the French Revolution, of course, began in 1789 when she was 13. So much of Jane's life, Jane's Britain had been at war. Her family went to war, as many families did at that time, with her brother Henry in the army, her brother Frank in the Navy, and her brother Charles also in the Navy. It was one of the only ways for a man to distinguish himself without coming from money or title at the time. Helena Kelly talks in her article about how everyone around Jane had fully realized lives. And Jane and Cassandra also were shadows, really. They didn't have much, and there wasn't much reported about them. Now, aside from about five years that they spent in Bath between 1801 and 1806, and a few years in Southampton, and a few months where she was at school, occasionally she went on visits and holidays. But Jane spent all of her life in rural Hampshire. She never married. She died, of course, in Winchester in 1817 when she was age 41 and was buried there in the Winchester Cathedral. But in the four years between the end of 1811 and the end of 1815, she published her four major works, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, and Emma. Her other two novels, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion, got published near the end of 1817, right about the year that she died. Now, Jane and her sister, and much of her family, but not all, because of course the boys would variously, during their time periods, would go off to war. But Jane and her sister and parents would really be continually on the move. From 1801 to about 1806, their city was more of a base, and and they stayed a lot in Bath at that time as well. Now, they, they lodged in different different parts of Bath, in Sydney Place, in Green Park, in Trim Street. They made lengthy visits to family, and they would spend months at a time going away to seaside resorts. A lot of these seaside resorts, and of course Bath, became, of course, settings for some of the pivotal scenes in Jane's novel. All of her novels. 
you can also say that it's been written that that Jane didn't have a lot of interest in her writing when she was in Bath, but that's not actually the case. It was during this time in the spring of 1803 that she first had her novel accepted for publication, her very first novel, which was called Susan at the time. And um, it's pretty universally accepted that Susan was a version of the book that we now know as Northanger Abbey. Now, Wikipedia says, good old Wikipedia, (laughs) says there's little biographical information about Jane Austen's life, except for the few letters that survive and the biographical notes that her family members wrote. Now, during Jane's life, Jane might have written, they say, up to 3,000 letters, but only around 160 of those are still surviving. Many of those letters were written to Cassandra, but in 1843, Cassandra burned the large part of the letters and cut pieces out of the ones that she kept. Now, Cassandra said that she destroyed those letters because she didn't want them falling into the hands of relatives, and she wanted to ensure that their younger relatives did not read any of Jane's sometimes acid or forthright comments on her neighbors and family members. Cassandra thought then that her, in the interest of tact, and because Jane was pretty plain spoken, that's, that's been recorded quite a bit, what, what you'd call forthright. So it leads, leads one to believe that Jane didn't pull any punches in those letters. So Cassandra believed that those details and maybe those nasty things that she said should be destroyed. So unfortunately, that's one of the reasons why we don't have a lot to work with with Jane's actual life. And also, there's the fact that uh, her her brothers were in charge of her estate after after she died, and they didn't want anything to come out that was not that wouldn't reflect on her well. And then successive generations, of course, would take out and sanitize the the already small details that we have of her of her biography. Now, her her brother even wrote things in in the uh, prefaces to her books that weren't necessarily true or definitely per- definitely swayed one direction to to be in favor of what they called a good quiet aunt jane which would then portray a woman whose domestic situation was happy and who was happy to be in the bosom of her family having the center of her life now of course modern modern biographers understand that those details are pretty much kind of like the to the victor gets the spoils kind of thing. It's it's a lot easier to sanitize things in retrospect. But it's pretty clear from Jane Austen's letters that she at times wasn't very happy with her situation. And sometimes she was disappointed and bitter and felt trapped. There was a very significant person in Jane's life and not much is made out of him. He's one of the the mysteries that that we can think of now as biographers of Jane, Tom Lafoy. When Jane was about 20 years old, there was a neighbor named Tom Lafoy who visited Steventon from about December to January of 1975 to 76. He just finished at his university and he was going to London for training as a barrister. So Tom Lafoy and Austin could possibly have been introduced at a social event somewhere. But according to Cassandra's letters, they spent considerable time together. There is a quote 
that is left to us that says, quote, I am almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behaved. Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. <laughs> she seems like a hoot. Jane wrote in her last, her first surviving letter to Cassandra about him that Tom Lafoy was a very gentlemanlike, good-looking, pleasant young man. And five days later, she wrote that she had, she really was expecting an offer from her friend, but said, I shall refuse him, however, unless he promises to give away his white coat, going on to say, I will confide myself in the future to Mr. Tom Lafoy, for whom I don't give sixpence and refuse all others. The next day, she wrote, the day will come on which I flirt my last with Tom Lafoy, and when you receive this, it will be all over. My tears flow as I write at this melancholy idea. So we don't know what happened, but it's clear that Jane was genuinely happy about Lafoy at the beginning, and subsequently nobody else measured up quite to him. It seems that the Lafoy family, uh, from all the evidence we have, the Lafoy family sent him away towards the end of January. A marriage was not a practical idea for both of them. Neither of them, they were both poor, and he had he had to establish himself in Ireland to finance his education and establish his career. We don't know if he ever visited Hampshire again, but if so, he was carefully kept away from Jane, and Jane never saw him again. In November of 1798, Tom was still on her mind. She wrote in a letter to her sister that she had tea with one of his relatives, and she wanted so desperately to ask about him, but she could not bring herself to raise the subject. Oh, how sad. Now, um, the thing that's particularly interesting to me, uh, she, she did die very early at 41, but there isn't a lot of surviving evidence about that either, of course. There are letters to say that she was feeling unwell by about early 1816, but ignored any worrying signs. So then by the middle of 1816, she was in severe decline and she began a very slow, irregularly irregular illness that would lead her to deteriorate quite rapidly towards the end. Most of her biographers talk about the diagnosis that was given from her, from her, her symptoms after her death. They think that she had something called Addison's disease, but her final illness has also been described as resulting from Hodgkin's lymphoma. When her uncle died, and left his entire fortune to his wife. Pretty much Jane and her relatives were, were disenfranchised completely and disinherited. Uh, shortly before her death, Jane suffered a relapse, writing in one of her letters, I'm ashamed to say that the shock of my uncle's will brought on a relapse, a relapse but a weak body must excuse weak nerves. So it must have just been so incredibly difficult to be so dependent at that time. And for her to, to work so steadfastly on her own writing, which was seen as such a radical act for the time. And Jane kept working in spite of her illness. She wasn't satisfied with one of her novel's endings. This novel was called The Elliots. So she rewrote the final two chapters. She finished them in, in the end of August of 1816. And then in 1817, she began the Brothers, which was titled Sanditon, when it was published finally in 1925. She completed 12 chapters before she stopped. In the middle of March of 1817, we think that that's due to her illness. 
she she describes one of her heroines as an energetic invalid in her novel. And in that in that novel, interestingly, she was sick the whole time she wrote it, but she mocked people who she saw as hypochondriacs. And though she describes the heroine as bilious five days after abandoning her novel, she wrote of herself that way, saying that she was turning every wrong color and living chiefly on the sofa. She finally put down her pen on the 18th of March, 1817, and made a note of it. She really had a wicked sense of humor. It's reported that she made a, a lot of jokes about her condition. She describes it as bile and rheumatism. And then as her illness progressed, she had difficulty walking and she had terrible energy. I, I would expect that right now that would be a chronic fatigue type of illness. So then by mid-April of that year, she was all she was all all done walking and she was confined to bed. In May, she was brought to Winchester for treatment. She had agonizing pain all through it and said she she wrote saying she welcomed death. So sad. She died in July of 1817 at the age of 41. And then, as I said, she was buried in Winchester Cathedral. Her epitaph, which was composed by her brother James, praises her personal qualities, expresses hope for her salvation, and mentions the extraordinary endowments of her mind, but doesn't explicitly mention her achievements as a writer. It's so sad that she wasn't as celebrated in her time as she is now. Her, her major works include, of course, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey, Persuasion, and Lady Susan, as well as several other minor works. But it's pretty incredible, isn't it, that the woman we know as Jane Austen had such a, a sad and cloistered life, but still managed to produce some of the most really compelling and and reverberating, reverberate, 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 <laughs> enduring works of literature that have been redone so many times. It's incredible. I, I really like to learn about Jane Austen. I thought that I knew everything there was to know, but it's nice to know that she had a secret history. It makes you feel better to know that she was a person too, a real person and not just a, a person in a dampened dress. You know, you see all those ladies from Emma that looked very, very light and not as if they had a lot of inner life. And how incredible that Jane did. I wanted to talk a little bit about women in science. I haven't studied that a ton, but I'm finding it so fascinating. My daughter is very into science. And of course, with all of us being at home right now, it's really giving me time to explore some of those interests that I haven't maybe spent or given a lot of time to in the past. And one of the things I really like to use as different projects is um, old natural and scientific illustrations. I think they're fascinating. They have the bonus of often being, um, <laughs> there usually isn't a copyright on them, so you can use them for your own stuff just for fun. But one of the wonderful, wonderful pieces of art that I've found recently is the um, scientific art by the German-born naturalist and illustrator Maria Sibylla Marion. Now, Maria was born in 1647 and died in 1717. They say that uh, in a great article that I researched it through uh, brainpickings.org, 
Maria did for the study of insects what the pioneering fossil hunter Mary Anning did for paleontology and egg collector and scientific illustrator Genevieve Jones did for ornithology. She has now become what they say is one of the most important contributors to the field of entomology in the history of science. She has an, a recent exhibition at the Getty Museum of her of her gorgeous drawings and her understanding they say of the metamorphosis of the butterfly has laid the foundation for modern entomology oh it's fascinating all of the drawings are so intricate and detailed of all of the caterpillars and larvas and pupas and then beautiful wings of all of these insects marion bred her own insects but after she saw a collection of butterflies from uh, dutch guiana which is called Suriname now she became fascinated and she came and wanted to study them. So then she just decided to, to breed them to find out whether they had the same egg and caterpillar process as the ones that she knew. And then in 1699, she and her daughter sailed all the way to South America to study insects. It was pretty incredible. I mean, I can't believe that she did that at the time. She um, took six years there in South America, classified and evaluated hundreds of specimens. And eventually she published a book, Metamorphosis Insectorium Surinamsium, that she published in both Dutch and English, that was really incredible and groundbreaking in the course of entomology. She illustrated the entire book with stages of insects she discovered in 60 copper plate engravings that she, she used to draw the butterflies, moths, and caterpillars around all the plants she encountered on her travels. It was kind of what we would see now as, as a really incredible travel blog, <laughs> places that these people would never go. And the artistic whimsy, they say, that, that she showed really made the animals look alive. And it was very scientifically significant. Her uh, original engravings are reproduced in color now in that exhibit. And I really recommend if you look it up online, I'll put a link to the article I use for research on brainpickings.org. There are incredible all color, all color and, and all different kinds of insects that she studies. They say that she documented many years before other people at the time, the entire life cycle. But what is more interesting is that as a woman in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, she was able to make scientific contributions that would have been impossible in virtually any other field, simply by virtue of using the specimens from her own garden. That's incredible. That's absolutely astounding that she did that. Talk about blooming where you're planted, right? <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I, I thought that Maria would be a, a great one especially right now when we're all armchair, armchair travelers and we're all trying to grow victory gardens. At least I know I am. It, it's, it gives you a little bit something else to look at and think about when you are hoping to attract some of those butterflies or bees to propagate your garden. It's incredible to think about what a life she must have had. Now, I hope you guys are all staying safe during the pandemic time here. I know, as I said, we're starting our own garden. We're starting our own victory garden. I got to get out yesterday and hand till the whole thing. We had mulched it last year with lots and lots of leaves. So now I got to mulch all the leaves in. We we're able to get, we're very lucky in that we live in a rural area. So we have some friends who run what they call CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. So you're able to pay them in advance and you pay the farmer and the farmer produces the food for you and you get it directly from the farmer. 
We also are able to purchase some starts so we can do our own kind of gardening because there's just never enough zucchini, am I right? <laughs> Actually, that's not true. Where I live, it's the kind of place where if you leave your car unlocked any other year, people will slip zucchini in or they'll leave a bag of it on your porch. It's so incredibly well-grown here. <laughs> uh, but other than that, you know, we wanted to grow a few more of the things that we like so that we can keep them around. So we've been doing a lot of that during this time. And also, um, I've been getting a lot of reading done. I've been reading things that I never would have had the time to read before, like a 400-page book about uh, Winston Churchill, actually, which is fascinating and incredibly topical because he talks about fighting these unknown enemies. It's It's been very mind-blowing, actually. But I hope all is well with you all. Uh, I'll go ahead and share this week also that I've been cooking a lot. I've been making a bunch of uh, pizza for my kids. I share that recipe on my blog, on my Instagram, if you want to go ahead and go on over. And my last piece of news this week is that I'm very excited. I'm running a memoir and uh, biography writing class through my website. It's going to be a three-day masterclass that's for free leading up to the eight-week-long class. So if you're interested, go ahead and head over to my website, which is resilientpodcastnetwork.com or jenniferbyerschambers.com. And you can sign up there. Have a great week. Sometimes we have to start over. Sometimes we have to fight back Sometimes it's all too much Lost inside the black is